another episode of the ladies room as always we are your hosts jade mcmanus and i'm julie daguerre we are here to talk sports and sports adjacent things um so we have the nfl draft which i think was largely uneventful unless you're a bears fan in which case them doing something right and getting justin fields is like a seismic shift in your worldview yeah julie that's great to have that kind of optimism <laughs> right now um and I, and I appreciate, I appreciate that, you know, that this is the thing. It's like every, everybody is 16 and 0 or, or 17 right. and 0 or <laughs> whatever it is. But be. I didn't fall down on the floor during this draft, which is, I, I feel like a step forward. Oh, good. Well, listen, is again, I, I appreciate your optimism in this moment. I would just say that there's still so much time for things to go wrong for schisms to develop on the team for them <laughs> for to declare Andy Dalton the starter and yes pick up backup basketball games right you know all of these types of things yes uh how like and and I don't have any confidence that it's going to continue in any way shape or form it was just shocking for that one night you know it's it's take that take that moment and savor it i'm 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 glad i'm glad it's, you <laughs> are know, you you don't sound glad <laughs> <laughs> I feel, you know, I've covered, I've, I feel like I've covered, I covered a lot of drafts and um, because they were in New York for so long and at Radio City Music Hall. And um, it was a really fun thing, but it's, you know, it's such a pageant. It's really like the NFL's pageant where, you know, there's prancing and there's costumes and <laughs> <laughs> there's optimism. I feel like the people like a lot of smiling and hugging. It is, it's like, it is one uh, bouquet of roses short of the Miss America pageant. People hugging Roger Goodell. There's something you don't see every day. And yeah. Justin Wilson tried to do, I mean, Zach Wilson, sorry, tried to do this thing where he like ruffled the back of Roger Goodell's hair. And I was like, <laughs> don't touch his hair. Gross. It's bad enough that you have to hug him. And then they yeah, had the so fan sitting there in Goodell's chair. And see, he would, it's, it's a fun night. It's a fun, there's, you know, this is the thing like about the NFL draft is that it, is that in terms of like, like this is, this is a big night for sports where there is, there is absolutely no sport. There's like, <laughs> where no one runs, no one catches a ball. There's no, no one, you know, pulls, gets a sweat unless they, you know, drop to the second round and we're expecting to go in the first. Like there's just, there's very, there's very little that happens physically, but it's like, you know, it's, a, it's just, it's to me, it's such a contradiction of, um, in, a, in terms of sporting events. Well, two, I mean, I really feel like we're missing out not getting to watch them like row offensive linemen across the Bellagio fountain, which is what was supposed to happen um, yeah. before COVID shut down last year's drop. But having the fans sit there in the chair while Raj walks by and then says a few words to them. And you could tell like half the fans were just like, keep walking. <laughs> like, I don't want to talk to you. Well, that's the thing, the, you know, the fans booing Goodell is such a big part of such a big part of the event. Right. You have to figure out how to incorporate it in some right. way in the new, in the new era. I mean, I think it was, wasn't that like last year's where they had, where it was like all zoom kind of, yes. and they still, they still included the booze. Right. And who <laughs> knew that's when we found out that Bill Belichick had a sense of humor when he put yeah. his dog in the chair. 
exactly. Have you seen the video of him petting his dog? I've never seen Bill Belichick so happy. But it's, you know, it's it's a beautiful thing to see. Like, you know, Darth Vader. Dogs, man. <laughs> With a pet. <laughs> yeah. What kind of dog would Darth Vader have? Apparently a golden. I want to think like uh, like a Belgian Malinois that's like jet black. <laughs> but honestly, he'd probably have like a Shih Tzu. See, I think he'd have like a golden doodle. Something that would just completely go against type. Yeah. Something that is just pure, like a beating heart. <laughs> that's like what Darth Vader would have. Because he needs that. Right. When he's done. Humanize him. Yeah, exactly. He he (laughs) wants a little fluffy golden ball of love when he gets home. Who doesn't? Everybody needs that. Uh, So Jane, uh, Tim Tebow is trying to be back. I almost said Tim Tebow's back, but I'm like, he's not all the way back. He's just kind of back. He's just back. He's just back in our, in our view. In our world orbit. Yeah. yeah, You know, so I covered Tebow and and, uh, when he was at the Jets, which was a, a disaster for Mark Sanchez, who was the who was the starting quarterback at the time, because here you had the second the you know the quote unquote backup quarterback who who I don't I don't think he he didn't play very much for the Jets other than to come in for some of these trick plays which which he didn't like doing and kind of chafed against because he wanted to be a starting quarterback and then it completely <laughs> destroyed. Tim wants a lot of things. He did. He and he and, and he wanted that and and he's but he's like he was really. He was he was fun to cover. He's a nice person, and he, you know, he had a sense of humor, and he was he was accessible, and he, you know, he would get these big, um, you know, balloon bouquets from fans that would arrive at his locker. And I just think for Mark Sanchez to have to sit there and endure the stream of balloon bouquets, it was um, (laughs) it was a lot. It was a lot for a young quarterback. And and anyway, I mean, he could obviously talk about that, but so to you know, and and he really resisted the idea of, you know, being turned, you know, moving to another position in order to get more playing time or to be more useful to the team. So that was a real issue. But to me, like this is, you know, he is 33 years old and you don't get to write your ticket at 33 years old. And the only reason that he is still, you know, that this is a story is that, you know, people want a piece of that fan base that he brings along the conservative Christian, um, you know, base that is so, uh, such a big part of the NFL. And, and it's kind of like the anti-Kaepernick got to get Kaepernick out of the league, but got to keep Tim Tebow in. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, to me, it's just one big, uh, study in mediocre white man privilege. Like I'm not saying he's yeah. mediocre compared to the rest of us at sports, but I mean, in terms of the NFL and certainly MLB, he's nothing to write home about. I mean, yeah. he hasn't been a superstar since he was in college. Um, you know, he decided he wanted, he wasn't, wasn't working out for him the way he wanted the NFL. So then he wanted to play baseball. And a lot of people in baseball will say that he made it to the levels that he made it at purely based on who he is and not his talent. And now he's not getting what he wants in baseball. So he wants to, now he wants back in football and he wants to be a tight end. And it's like, you don't, you can't have things just because you want them. And and no matter what he wants, he's surrounded by people who tell him that he's, bigger than that he's got more than what he has it's like if you know if somebody were around me telling me that you know that i was you know flannery o'connor then i might be pushing to write more you know nonfiction. wouldn't that be great fiction books. so it's like, it really is it's like you know if i'm t- if people keep telling me i'm gonna win the pulitzer then you know maybe i'm maybe i get a bigger head i think you know i think he kind of believes his own hype in some ways and has i the thing i remember when when he when i was covering him at one point we were in a huddle and he this is the other thing is like he had days where he would talk. And as you know, like 
when you're covering an NFL team, only the top guys have days. Like mm-hmm. Santonio Holmes had days. Yeah. Mark Sanchez had days. Tim Tebow had no business as the backup quarterback having days, but he had a day. And I remember we were in the huddle there talking to him and I asked him point blank. I was like, do you plan to go into politics? And ah. to me, right, exactly. So to me, and somebody else reminded me of this the other day, because I was talking weird. You're not the only Tim Tebow conversation I've had. For <laughs> <laughs> <Poor> you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, you know, it, to me, like he is a, he is a, he is a key in search of a lock because he does have something. He does really have something and he compels people. And, you know, there are the, the, the world is littered with college players who were excellent in college and have not gone on to do anything in the pros. Right. But it, to me, he hasn't really found his thing yet. And it may not be sports, but he certainly has the ability to galvanize people. And maybe it's more of a political arena or and he, but he just hasn't been able to kind of find his voice in that area yet. Or maybe it's a nonprofit thing, or maybe it's a, you know, speaking to people about a certain, an issue or a, something that he cares about thing, but, but he just hasn't really. And I always feel like it's almost like the sports have distracted him from a larger purpose. Okay. You're nicer than I am. I don't care about his larger purpose. I'm just tired (laughs) of hearing about him. He should have, you know what? He should have taken Katy Perry's parents up on the offer when they tried to put them together. That would have been his ticket to like something way bigger. Yeah, right. But he actually didn't he like marry a Miss Universe uh, candidate or something? I don't know. I don't so know. well, I'm just it's all coming full circle with the comparison of the NFL to being a beauty pageant. Right. Yeah, it, you're exactly right. And I was thinking like the same kind of people that go to the NFL draft are the kind of people that go to like the Miss America pageant. It is an odd breed of people. It is. And I said the other day on Twitter because people are booing draft picks. I was like, these are teenagers. This is the best night of their life. Stop booing them. And then and immediately all these reply guys are like, oh, if they can't handle this, they should find another career. Yeah, exactly. Like they're going into the, they're, they're going to be professional boot at people. Right. So they and should like, get used to it. And they're all like holding their kid in a picture, which I'm like, OK, so wait till someone boos your teenager and then let's see how you feel about it. Yeah. I mean, I think Goodell's fair game because because he's right. making enough bank for that. I mean, his whole his whole job description is the taking of the bullets, (laughs) taking of the booze. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. (laughs) He's going to take all the booze. So in all, in all ways, and that's his job description. So he's fully prepared, but I agree. I think, you know, when you're talking about like 23, 24, 25 year olds holding their kids, you know, getting a real job, (laughs) yeah, being, you know, going from being exploited to being paid. It's (laughs) (laughs) awesome. Um, speaking of exploited, I'll just do this really quick. Um, I don't know if you heard this story, but you know, Northwestern has had a history of really bad sexual assault and, uh, uh, the way they handle sexual assault and sexual harassment allegations. And they have a cheerleader who is suing them for basically not handling her sexual harassment complaints properly. She was, um, her name is Hayden Richardson. And she talks about how cheerleaders were basically sent out in front of the old alumni, um, yeah. old drunken alumni to like parade around in their uniforms and get fondled and groped and propositioned and whatever. And uh, with no protection. And she's very tiny and guys used to like pick her up and like find her and do all kinds of stuff. Oh. So she went to Northwestern who did absolutely nothing. And one of the guys who not only did absolutely nothing, but accused her of fabricating evidence is the new athletic director at Northwestern oh. over Anuka Brown, who we knew as Anuka Brown Sanders. Right. Who sure. sued. NCAA and, and 
Right. right. Who successfully sued the New York Knicks and Isaiah Thomas, who everyone has just forgotten sexually harassed a woman out of her job. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, which annoys the hell out of me. Yeah. Um, and and the, put in charge of the Liberty. Yeah. Yeah. After even that. though he's in, in like he's an alum at IU and every time they send me something about Isaiah Thomas, I respond and I'm like, Isaiah Thomas was found <laughs> by a jury to have harassed a woman and you shouldn't be bringing him back for stuff like this. Um. Well, so, I'm looking forward to reading you about the Northwestern situation because it sounds like you are all over this. Uh, well, I want to say that it is due to the excellent uh, reporting by Shannon Ryan at the Chicago Tribune okay. that this is even on my radar. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's a story that's out there. And um, I had a couple of people reach out to me from the faculty who are aggravated as hell. Yeah. So it's going to be real. Oh, and the, the part that I miss is that 80 female faculty members wrote a letter to Northwestern being like, this is not OK. I don't care how seriously you take our concerns. What are you going to do about it? And what they did about it is putting the guy who is a named defendant in this lawsuit in charge of the athletic department. Well, the see to me, this is just highlights, you know, yet again, that. Uh, you cannot have a profit making for your school, non-profit making, you know, technically, but but let's be fair, bringing in a lot of money to the university business right. that you're running when it comes to revenue generating sports and also be true to the mission of a institution of higher education. I, I think it's a agree. very difficult needle to thread. Northwestern's a beautiful campus, but it ain't that beautiful. Yeah. It's not beautiful enough to get away with shit like this. I mean, I, I yes. am excited to read you on this, Julie, because I do feel like it is it's in your right in your wheelhouse. But, <laughs> it is my wheelhouse. But I'm also in that like, OK, how much did I how much can I say in here without having people be like, I can't believe you put that in there. I told you that in confidence, like kind of thing. So we'll see. Right. Well, you know, that's where editorial voice comes into play, where you can, you know, because you're because you are able to be, you know, kind of do a little bit of analysis, you can incorporate what you've learned without correct burning who you've spoken to. Yes. That's what I'm trying to figure out how to do. Well, uh, so that's a fun story. Shall we, shall we get to our guest because she's terrific? Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, quick break. I'll be right back with Julie Fowdy. Joining us this week in the ladies room is my personal soccer hero. Um, God, she's played for the U.S. women's team. She's played in a ton of different leagues. She's now a part owner of Angel City FC. We are really, really thrilled to have Julie Foudy joining us today. How's it going, Julie? Hello. <laughs> One of your favorites. Yay. Uh, seriously. Yes. I was, I'm a couple of years behind you. And I remember when you were in college and just being like so blown away by you. Oh, you're very kind. Oh, thank you. You're equally as old almost then so, as well. Yes. You're yes. So, a couple years <laughs> so, so Julie, the last time we talked, um, we were, we were, I interviewed you for my book and you're terrific. And we talked about, uh, you know, at that point, the pandemic just sort of getting underway and, and you were really concerned that the women's national soccer league was going to lose any traction that it had. Um, going into the pandemic, how do you think the the NWSL handled it, and how do you feel about where uh, women's pro soccer is right now today in the U.S.? Well, once again in life, I was wrong. <laughs> I, I think I'm wrong quite a bit. <laughs> I think I think as a sport, we've handled it really well, and I think NWSL in particular handled it great. First out of the gates, as we know, with the NWSL bubble, first professional 
U.S. team to play. They don't get nearly enough credit for that. And obviously the launch of Angel City, you see Racing Louisville, another expansion team. Um, there is, you know, rumors of Sacramento happening. I don't know if that's going to happen yet. That's kind of complicated and convoluted, which we don't need to get in the weeds on that. But I mean, overall, I feel like coming into the pandemic, there was so much concern about, oh my gosh, could this be the end of, you know, progress for women's sports and coming out of it, at least I'm hoping we're coming out of it. It, it does feel that we're in a stronger place. So Julie, that's absolutely true. And, and I wonder if it's also because those national women's soccer league games were on CBS and the WNBA it was on ESPN more. And it seemed like what happened was because the women's leagues decided to come back a little early, they were able to get uh, part of that broadcast window in a way that they haven't been able to before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause there wasn't a lot on for sure. Uh, yes, it does matter. I mean, seeing athletes compete makes a difference. We know that. And um, it's why it's still frustrating that, you know, the statistics haven't moved much in that space. What are we at still? 4% um, right. in terms of coverage of women's sports. And it's, you know, it's something Jane knows quite well. We, <laughs> we, we knock our heads against the brick wall often saying, you know, why aren't we running these highlights or why aren't we showing this? And, uh, and I do think, where we're going to see movement in that space is obviously when you get more women in decision-making positions at networks, at, you know, media companies, at newspapers, et cetera. And, and hopefully that's, that's starting to shift. Well, let me, let me just follow up with that by asking, do you think that given the fact that women actually rated on TV that we'll see some of that post pandemic, or is it just kind of like, well, that was an interesting experiment back to normal and we're going to continue to ignore women's leagues and games. No, I do think it matters. Obviously they look at all of that stuff and, and for NWSL, there was a 500% increase right. in, in viewership. I, I don't know what WNBA's numbers were, but I know they were up. Um, I know their March Madness numbers were good. I know uh, just reading recently that, you know, they're, collegiate softball ranks and rates about the same as their uh, collegiate baseball broadcast, right? So it does matter. And that uh, dictates some of it, but not all of it. And especially as the schedule starts to get crowded and especially as, um, you know, sports are getting slammed into now, you know, a smaller space because all these sports coming back, for example, collegiately, you just can't get them all on. They're all trying to get their, you know, their seasons in, their championships in, and all of those things. But so that uh, obviously affects it. But I do think that they are starting to see and we're see- seeing a shift where there's awareness that, oh, there is a market to be had here. Some of what we've been saying um for years as athletes, just in terms of putting money into the marketing of these games. I think you're seeing, and I'm, Jane, I don't know if you disagree with me here, but I think you're seeing that there is somewhat of a shift happening happening in terms of viewership as well. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's a shift happening in viewership, but I guess what surprises me, well, no, t- scratch that. Nothing surprises me. 
<laughs> when it comes to this. But I, th- I guess what I had thought was when you prove concept that women's sports are both marketable and people will watch them and they can move ratings. Um, and also, I mean, I think we've seen just personally women's athletes become so much more popular. Per, you know, if you look at the social media engagement for different um, accounts, Though you women athletes pull in the fans, like they have more engagement mm-hmm. with their fans. And I kind mm-hmm. of thought in the back of my head, well, you know, concept has been proven. Um, and I don't see the same response on the broadcasting side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, and I think they are always, there's a lag time. I think they're slower to react. Um I think, and I think in large part, that's because it's still a very white, uh, older white guy that's running a lot of these departments. And so that shift, I mean, I just, you know, you see it, it's, to, to be fair, you see it at ESPN where you're sometimes saying, you know, why are we still doing this? And have we not realized that there is a shift? Uh, it's not all linear and it's, it's streaming as well. And could we get into that space in a stronger way on the women's side? And so- yeah. Um, but I do think that's part of the lag and, um, that continues to frustrate all of us, which is why, you know, you're seeing, I think the start of companies like just women's sports and, um, this women's soccer channel, ATA that does all women's streaming of professional games of national team games. And that's starting to show numbers. So that's what I think is going to then start to click in as well. When you're starting to see numbers there. Because they are, they have been good. I just want to add, and this is really apropos of nothing, but it got me thinking about it with you guys talking about broadcasting, that I I was so aggravated that when the men, like when the U.S. women's national team was playing, and, and I think the, the game must have been on Fox because Alexei Lawless was involved. And we have like a mix of men and women talking about the game. But then when the men are playing, we have all men talking about the game. It's almost like mm-hmm. you can't be trusted on your own women to talk about soccer. So here's Alexei Lawless <laughs> and here's a few other people just to make sure that you guys get it right. And then when the men are playing, it's like, oh, we can't have women in here. This is the men's game. And it really aggravated me. And I, I've spent quite a bit of time yelling at Alexei Lawless on Twitter. So I don't, I'm not really aimed at him. But I, I mean, that's the kind of thing that just aggravates the hell out of me when I see it. Well, I don't think you're alone, Julie. There's a lot of people who get aggravated I see on Twitter about that. Yeah. So, all right. I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, Julie, I wanted to ask you about the the formation of this kind of unique owners group for Angel City FC. Um, is it FC? Am I right? Or am I just saying that? Mm-hmm. Did I make that no, up? You're okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> Did I just add an FC <laughs> onto the end of it? Um, so first of all, I got to ask, you know, I, I, I've read a little bit about how you got involved in this and how Abby Wambach sort of marshaled the troops for this. Um, so I wanted to ask you about your involvement. And also, are, are you getting to hang out now with like Jessica Chastain and Natalie Portman? Like, are we going to see you chilling in like an owner's <laughs> box with all the a-list celebrities oh we're bffs now for sure <laughs> oh, <nice. laughs> sorry natalie's on the phone got it wrong <laughs> natalie's calling me <laughs> so it started with uh natalie really is the godmother of all of this she's the catalyst behind all of this because she heard abby speak at a time's up event and abby was talking about you know just the challenges for female athletes how when she's walking away from retirement and she's standing on the stage accepting an award with Peyton Manning and Kobe Bryant, how their two lives 
post playing were very different than her life. Like they're sta- staring at millions of dollars and what do they want to jump into? And she's like, shoot, I got to still hustle. What am I, I need a side hustle. What am I going to do? Yeah. And as Natalie's hearing this, she's like, why, why is that still the case? And then she started investigating. Why don't we have a professional team in LA women's team? And couldn't we help make the case that they should be paid better? And so she started asking all these questions and bless Natalie. She's just not one to throw out questions. She actually follows up on them. And she did a ton of legwork linked with Karen Nortman and Julie Ehrman, who are two women, the three founders really of this idea and really started pitching it to Alexis Ohanian, of course, who's one of our majority owners, and then a ton of women and A-listers in Hollywood and Julie and Natalie and Kara I met and be um, pre-pandemic and at an event. And I said, you know, I want to hear more and I want to be an investor and, and I want in. And, uh, and as I was talking to them, I said, you know, Mia will want in, Ham, who lives mm-hmm. in LA. And Mia and I started talking and I said, Mia, this seems like this should be something we all should be doing together. I just that the way we're wired is like it's just a team activity. <laughs> if it's <laughs> you and me, it's gotta be everyone. And so we went to Julie and Karen and and Natalie and said, Hey, we want to get, you know, the rest of us who are connected to LA from the national team either played here or lived here or grew up here. Um, And so we got all of us who had that connection in one email and literally within like a day, they all just started streaming back in, 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 in. Yes. (laughs) It's so so great. Bringing that ends up bringing down your the necessary investment to what thirty two cents per per player because you have because you have three thousand people who are who are anting up. Well, that that was the beauty of it is we could go in. We actually formed a corporation. Uh, I forget what they call it an SPV special purpose vehicle or something like that. And uh, we formed this you know limited liability group and and now we go in under one umbrella as. Um, you know, Angel City investors. And so, and it's really fun because we purchased all our seats together. We're all sitting together. It's going to be like, it's going to be like old times. I'm like, I cannot wait for these games to start, mostly so I can see all you crazies. <laughs> you know, it's such a, it, it reminds me of something I read that's men sort of hold power um, individually and women build consensus. And that's exactly what I thought of when I saw yeah, this and how many huddle. people were involved that, yeah, it's like we, women build consensus. We huddle. I mean, we're great huddlers and that's what I love about it. It's these amazing women from all these different silos who care deeply about the same thing. And it is like nothing I have ever been a part of because they just think differently. Obviously we haven't been able to meet in person, but we get together on zoom calls and we do these big ownership zoom calls, which are crazy with all of these stars and all of these people. And yet it's, they're all in, like they're engaged and they want to do you know, community outreach when they're talking about, oh, we're going to visit this Hispanic center or we're going to this, you know, underserved boys and girls club or we're doing, you know, and you literally have these, you know, A-list celebrities going, hey, can I show up? Uh, yeah, you can come. <laughs> sure, America Ferrera. You want to come here, Gloria? Okay, yeah. It's nuts. So it's really neat because it's it's a different mindset than anything I've been part of. It's always been more of, oh, you should be grateful we have a team. And this is, oh, let's go kick some ass. Let's go. 
that's that's interesting because I think we've been looking for the last you know thirty years or at least since I've been cognizant and about women's professional sports being a real possibility at the team level. Um, in terms of you know how are women going to be different in the way they go about consuming sports, watching women, and then also uh, in terms of like leadership groups and and the money part of it. And and this I think is is a little bit of a blueprint right now what you guys are setting mm-hmm. up because it's very much like okay so we've had a couple of different tries at a professional soccer league and kind of like looking outside for investors. And I think in the last five years, really, I think we've started to have women kind of looking inward and saying, well, how are we investing? And getting to a point where you've had women who've played at a professional level, have had a certain level of salary and um, are, and can say, OK, now it's my turn to give back. And it's amazing how many different women, whether, you know, Serena Williams or you or and Mia, but but all and, and Sarah's Bain even, you know, as a broadcaster mm-hmm. doing the right. same thing in Chicago of being able to say, well, no, now I have enough where I can be the person mm-hmm. who is the investor. Yeah. And, you know, what's also interesting is now I have a ton of companies calling. Do you want to come and be an owner investor with us? Mm-hmm. And we want to get to more female athletes. Can you help us get there? And we're, we love this idea and this concept of Angel City. And it does, it, it, it certainly has been contagious because you see immediately all these people calling and inquiring. And so to this day, I don't, oh gosh, this feels like it's, it's almost been like a year since we formed it all, but I forget how long it's been. But you have people in, you know, Spain, to your point, immediately was like, how do I do this in Chicago? This is amazing. <laughs> and they did it in Chicago. And how do we do this in New York, New Jersey? How do we do this in Northern Cal? And so all these markets around the country and in other sports as well, thinking, hmm, here's, here is a blueprint and, and a roadmap for how we can think differently about this. And clearly, our sponsorship numbers, I and mean, we haven't revealed all of them, but we're crushing it with sponsorships mm-hmm. in, yeah, in a way that will, again, be a roadmap for how we should be doing and thinking about this. And it's just a different mindset. Like I mentioned, like we're giving 10% of all sponsorship dollars back to the community. Mm-hmm. And that was something as owners, we were like, oh, hell yes, this is why we built this, right? We want to be successful, of course, on the field. But really, the thing that binds us all together from all these different silos is that we want this to be a super powerful influencer in the community in terms of young girls and women and women-led businesses and all these things that they're thinking tangentially about, which is really cool. It's a, it's a very different shift. I don't know, Julie, because Draymond Green said that you guys don't reach out enough to corporate sponsors. So maybe <laughs> try that a little bit more. Oh, Draymond. Why, <laughs> why did he wade into that? Uh, I don't know. But, you know, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about uh, the ongoing legal battle for the current U.S. Women's National Team. Um, They, you know, obviously we have the settlement of the part of the suit that dealt with, let's say, accommodations, hotel rooms, turf on the field, um, you know, what kind of plane you ride in that was so disparate from the treatment that the men's team got, even though every single one of those four stars on the front of the U.S. jersey is because of the women's team. 
and the men wear them as well. So, I mean, that it was great to see that that part settled. Um, now they're able to appeal the, the you know, the, the big part of, of this lawsuit, which is equal pay. Um, where do you see this thing going? I know that we've had a turnover um, in in the leadership at USA Soccer since this happened. Carlos Cordero is out. Uh, Cindy Parlacone is in. Um, do you think that this is going to, has a chance of settling? Does this have a chance of going better for them this time around, uh, with someone else in charge? I do because I adore Cindy Parlo, who, as you just mentioned, is the new president. She's a teammate of mine from the nineties. She understands in two thousands, she gets the fight like no one else. And if there's ever been a shift in mindset at U.S. soccer, because as we know, we were battling them going back to my days and uh, <clears throat> trying to constantly rattle the cage to, you know, the fact that they're still, these current players are still having to do it. It's frustrating for sure, but you finally have someone, and mind you, the, the president figure is is a voluntary position. It's, um, it's not a paid position, so it's not, um, it's not the CEO necessarily of U.S. soccer, but she is right there leading the ship in terms of just, okay, how are we going to make this culture shift? Because it needs to happen here at U.S. Soccer. So if there is a time for this to happen, I think it's under Cindy. Um, they also have obviously a new CEO and, uh, and Will. And so um, from everything I've heard about him, he's great as well. So they have been trying to do a lot of um, changes there. But Right now, I mean, the update is, is that there, there hasn't been any movement, sadly. You know, I just had a conversation actually with Cindy last week when they had these statements come out from both sides that were super terse and <laughs> from Molly Levinson, the spokesperson mm-hmm. for, for the women saying, you know, bullshit, they haven't offered us equal pay and for U.S. soccer events. And we're so far away from that. And they keep saying that and they're lying essentially to us. And I was like, Cindy, who's lying here? You say you're offering equal pay. They say you're not. And what happens is it gets lost in these little details that never get discussed because the two aren't talking. And so, you know, I'm hopeful and I try and stay out of it with the players, but I'm hopeful that they will actually try and get to the table because you have a player who gets it and Cindy Parlow, right? And the big sticking point in all of this, because, you you know, Cindy will say, and she said it publicly, so I'm not revealing anything here. She says, we've offered them all games that we run, meaning U.S. soccer control games. We offer them equal pay. What we pay them in, we will pay you. It will be exactly the same. We, we guarantee that. Um, the big sticking point, of course, is that FIFA bonus money, which if a men, if the men's team wins the World Cup, it's, Huge amounts of money from FIFA paid to U.S. soccer. If a women's team wins a World Cup, it's, you know, a fraction, mm-hmm. a small fraction of what the men get paid, gets paid to U.S. soccer. And they're asking that that should be the same. And what U.S. soccer essentially says is that would cause us to be bankrupt if we were to pay because we expect our women to win the next one as well. And we're that good we would be bankrupt because we just couldn't pay out this, you know, the 40 some million dollars that is required if they win a World Cup. <clears throat> that's going to make the men feel good. Like they have this deal, but it's like, yeah, no one thinks you're going to win though. So that's why we can offer that to you. <laughs> that's what they actually have said. Sunil Zalati would be like, I'd be like, well, why'd you put that in the contract then? He's like, cause our men are never going to win it. <laughs> <laughs> and if, but 
it what no to be fair that's not fair to him he would say well and if they do that money gets paid to us through fifa right and the reason the difference in fifa money is is obviously and fifa will say oh well the difference and why there's such a pay gap is we make that much more on the men's side and we as women have been arguing forever well, of course you do, because you have forgotten about the women's side for eternity, and you don't support it. You've never watered the garden. You've never invested in the women. If you actually invested in the women, you'd make more money on the women's side as well. It will take us time to catch the men, of course, um, but you haven't invested any. And and so there is a battle for sure to still be had with FIFA on that. But U.S. soccer is basically saying, we don't control that money. That's FIFA money. And I'm afraid, honestly, that, again, they'll lose in the courtroom because the courtroom, as we know, is very different, you know, than legal, I'm sorry, than public opinion. Um, And and who knows? And so I just don't want it to be left to chance. Yeah, I think the part of the thing with that is, though, if you can establish equal pay in this context where it's certainly in, in terms of public opinion, people understand what what the what's fair and that the women who play haven't been getting what's fair. But if you can establish that as a principle in court, then the benefits expand well beyond soccer to women in the workplace everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that would be a big win in a lot of different ways. So I I see why, and I, and I, and I honestly, I appreciate that at least in terms of the way the public thinks about work and pay that the U S women's soccer team has made so, um, so much inroads um, in terms of, of just putting that baseline of equity. Right. There. right. Um, that's a big deal. I, I do want, you know, and, and I've been so like with, when the uh, NCAA women's tournament and the, the photographs and the videos came out of the just absolute yeah. paltry triangle of weights that the women had while the men had an entire, you know, ballroom filled with different weights, and um, different kind of equipment, just absolutely a palace to working out for the men while the women had a yoga mat. Um, I've been thinking about how similar, how similarly U.S. soccer and the NCAA treat the women's side of the equation with both of these, which is that, and we talked to David Berry, who's an economics professor, a couple of weeks ago for the podcast, and he was saying, you you know, women's sports have so much growth potential that men's sports don't have. Men's sports are contracting now in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, how much money different broadcasters and corporations get, can get on them, whereas there is mm-hmm. still room to grow for women's sports. So there are all this mm-hmm. unrealized potential. And I, I couldn't help but think how similarly these two organizations treat the women with all of this mm-hmm. growth potential and just completely ignoring it. Mm-hmm. Although that that was our era, right, of U.S. soccer. Where, right. you know, here's your weight room and here is what the men's team was getting. We'd be like, WTF? What? <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? And then, you, you know, it, and that's why that was 20 years ago for us. Now the women get nice hotels. They get all these things. Sure, we had to fight like hell for it to get it. But it's it's there. But to see an organization like NCAA, it's like, what? You were still... Like, yeah. And then you try and sweep it under the rug with like a false claim about space when you don't think anyone's going to pull out a camera and show that there's plenty of space. I mean, it's just so, so backwards. It makes you sick still. Like, and, and every woman in every industry has felt that way. Um, but yeah, it, 
the problem is it's 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 always an, it's an afterthought, and that's where you just get so frustrated as women athletes. It's like when are we going to stop being an afterthought? I thought we were beyond this. No, clearly we're not. I mean, I had a Dia Barnes on the podcast, um, on our podcast that just laughter permitted. Everybody should yeah. be downloading and yes. listening. Yeah, the Adia Barnes episode is really really good. Yeah, and. So she's saying they, they they didn't even the food was terrible. She, I mean, beyond the like, don't even get into childcare and um, and the testing and the swag and all of that. But she's like, you know, I, we ended up having to go get our players food compared to you know what the men were getting, which we thought was much nicer. So in, anyway, yes, it's frustrating that we're still dealing with this. I can't even remember Jane what your original question with that is, but it's because I get so freaking well, fired more, up. More statement. <laughs> Okay, good. I start seeing red. <laughs> I know, just keep it. Well, I I guess, and then my follow-up for that is that, I, I, you know, I lived in the UK for two years and got to see women's soccer there, which is taking off and they, they have a league. And also to see how kind of the, the British national teams, how, how, how the British Olympic uh, organization was thinking about uh, pro the profile for the women and the men. And, and, and of course the year that I was there, um, the, the women did extremely well in world cup. They, um, they ended up making it to the final four and, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't help but think at that moment, what if the rest of the world starts treating soccer, women's soccer seriously and women's sports like the U S we've had, like, because of your generation, like we had a head start. Like we had 20 years out the gate before anybody even mm-hmm. noticed that the starting gun had gone off. But now the world could catch up. Yeah. And to your point earlier, that's what I was going to actually comment on, that it's a small investment for a much larger return. Like, I forget who you said, Dave Barry was who you were talking to yeah. about the, the difference in market. This is what we've argued for years. You You can't, for example, you cannot turn a men's program and become a competitor on the global stage with a million dollar investment. But you could with the women, you could put a million dollars into your women's program or into your grassroots. And I'm just pulling that number out of the air, but you put a small investment into that and the return would be huge because as soon as what you're seeing in these countries, there's a little bit of success and a little bit of visibility for these women, they eat it up. And that's, I think, going to be the turn for women, women's soccer. And that's what you're seeing with the numbers they're attracting. I mean, globally, this World Cup just blew it out of the, you know, blew the roof off in terms of numbers for the 2019 World Cup. Mm-hmm. And in countries that typically aren't consuming women's football because they just, you know, culturally haven't ever watched it. But now you're seeing the shift. And that's, I'm hoping that's the, you know, I used to say to U.S. soccer all the time, I do not care where you fall on your love, hate of women's soccer. I don't. <laughs> I don't care. You can hate us. The fact remains, you are missing out on all this money. There is <laughs> money to be had. And that must get you excited because I know that's what drives some of this. <laughs> all of it, sadly. And they'd be like, what? Money? Okay. <laughs> yeah. What? Did you say money? <laughs> yeah, well- money. I mean, it, unless you ever doubt, Julie, that, that the legacy of those teams you played on continues till today. I've had so many men, and they say this to me as if it, it's somehow a, a compliment to me, and it's really not. But they're like, you know, I've been watching the women since the 90s. I'd much rather watch the women than the men. So <laughs> they always say it to me, but I feel like I should tell you that people say that to me. 
Um, all this time I thought it was because I was so chesty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Julie Foudy, uh, a great American sports hero. She's a world champion. She's an Olympic champion. She's got a successful podcast, which may be the most impressive of all She's the She's funny as hell. Let's be honest. Who cares about the other stuff? Yeah, because the <laughs> podcast space is so crowded. So anytime someone so happy has a- you guys. Wait, time out. I'm so happy you jumped in. Oh. Yeah, we are too. We're having a great time. So fun. It, it really is. And we, uh, need, and we need more women talking about awesome women. Completely yes. agree. And issues that matter. <clears throat> so I'm so happy you got in. Yeah, we are too. Uh, follow Julie on Twitter at Julie Foudy. Make sure you check out Laughter Permitted. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks you too. Anytime. Welcome back to the ladies room. Uh, Julie, I was hoping to kind of get a little bit more into what Julie Foudy was saying about broadcasters as gatekeepers. And it's, it's interesting that you can actually the prove concept of women's sports being something that is um, watchable, something that captures an audience, something with a high ceiling in terms of revenue that hasn't been reached yet and still not be able to get the coverage. And I think it has to do with this idea of gatekeeping. And so much of what we see in sports is, um, is not just about raw, what is, what is most compelling, but it is curated. And that the people who are doing the curating are still making decisions that disadvantage women. Because again, not, we are not always taken seriously as athletes. Um, you know, you have to undo hundreds if not thousands of years of expectations of what women are capable of and it is it is a very difficult thing to do yeah i was thinking about this when i was watching the ncaa women's volleyball tournament now i used to love volleyball i've not played volleyball since high school competitively um but i was so into the ncaa women's volleyball tournament and i think the only reason i got to see it is because i have so many channels and I happened to find it and I was like, I was so compelling and I was so into it. And I was like, you, you cannot tell me that if you put this on like ESPN one in prime time, that people wouldn't watch it. They absolutely would. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a decision. I, I know Dave Barry, who we spoke to a couple of weeks, um, you know, who's a, a, an economist and professor was talking about that as well, that, that these decisions are inexplicable. You take you take, it's like saying, well, we don't want to watch women's gymnastics and just putting it on the, the Ocho. Right, <laughs> <You know>? the Ocho. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, and because you are, you're, you're curtailing, it, it is something that you do that disadvantages your own, your own corporate interests, which is if, if your own corporate interests were actually maximizing the revenue that you could get for broadcasting individual sports. But I don't know that that's, the entire mission of a broadcaster. I think it's also about reinforcing certain cultural expectations and providing a certain space in our culture. And so there's a lot of curating when it comes to what is allowed to be on and what isn't. Yes. Like when cornhole and drone racing are on instead of women's sports. I remember, I I don't remember exactly when it was, because I feel like the last year just has completely trashed my, any sense of time and space that I ever had. But I mean, there was a time that the women's NCAA soccer tournament was happening and ESPN was showing drone racing. And I was like, this is unbelievable. 
Um, now, it's there's not a lot of unbelievable. No, but there's a lot of questions about, you know, we don't have a, we don't have the rights to that and NCAA and contracts and all that kind of stuff. There's but always the end, a reason. At the there's end of the day, reason. yeah, at the end of the day, you'd rather show cornhole, which is properly called bags and drone racing rather than women's sports. Right. Yes. Because it's not very because it's not threatening your audience. Maybe they're not into it, but it's not going to it's not going to directly threaten them. How do you ever know? How do you know if people are into it? If you, I mean, whoever thought that, that so many people in America would love curling? Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's a fantastic, just objectively fantastic sport. <laughs> and also, it's like the best hangover sport ever to watch. Just later. There's something curling. so soothing about the way that the rock slides over. The and ice. it seems like it goes on for like eight hours and you can just <laughs> lay there and watch it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's sports. I mean, who I mean, I remember when the X Games used to be on MTV, like, you know, I mean, things that people don't expect to get a larger audience somehow do when they find their people. I mean, I grew up hearing from every broadcaster in the world how boring was soccer and Americans don't like soccer and Americans don't like it because there's not enough scoring. And look now. Yeah, exactly. Now they're fighting over the rights for soccer. A hundred percent. And streaming rights are through the roof and they're driving the entire streaming industry at the moment. But I think with, you know, when Julie was playing on the women's national team and, you know, absolutely captivating the audience in 1999, I think there was a lot of optimism about, well, if we can just prove that people care about women's sports, well, that's going to mean that we get, you know, that we get the broadcasting and that we get the coverage and that we get the sponsorship dollars and everything else. And clearly that is not, it's not that simple. It is not just that. It is also crashing through these cultural expectations and cultural gatekeepers uh, yeah. in order to, to reach your potential. And I think that that is, um, you know, you could almost hear it in Julie's voice that that, was, that, that, is a, that is a burden that she may not have fully understood, you know, 20 years ago when she was yeah. kicking ass. Yeah. Now, yeah, it's... Um... Uh, I, I, I mean, I mean, we talked <laughs> about it. brought you down? No, we talk about it every, no, your story about COVID never going away brought me down. But let's <laughs> get to your time in, story. Okay. I'm just we'll the for the times. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Um, yeah, no, I mean, we talk about this every week and it's frustrating. And you know, the thing that is so frustrating to me and, and, and this is, you know, you have a lot of women covering women's sports often for free, um, doing it as a labor of love which I've seen so many women doing this, especially with the NWHL, especially with the NWSL, especially with the WNBA, women who run sites and uh, have a bunch of volunteers and they all do it for free because they love women's sports. They love the WNBA. They love the NWSL. And, um, you know, then to see sometimes when these sports start getting attention to, to see this, the league sort of lean in to people who have not been doing the work, first of all, and second of right. all, um, who, you know, have been harassing some of the women that do the coverage. Um, and I'm speaking specifically about the NWHL and the Erica Nardini situation and, um, mm-hmm. you know, them leaning into barstool sports that has spent, you know, a hell of a lot of time harassing the women that cover the sports. Um so, I, yeah, so, I mean, the whole situation, and I'm sure we will work through it. I mean, we're so much farther now than we were when I was a kid. Right. And I'm sure in the next generation, we will be so much farther down the road. But, yeah, I mean, on a day-to-day basis, like listening to Julie and seeing some of the things happening and finding out that the, that our national women's soccer team had to, like, double up at the Marriott while the guys were all in their own rooms and suites and stuff like that. I mean, that's depressing to hear. And it's, you know, sort of one of those things that you sit for a minute 
you accept it, you take it in, and then you take a deep breath and try to like keep moving forward. And I can imagine how it is for the athletes. Well, that's, I was just going to say like you, when you have ownership groups though, that are actually investing in these teams, you know, I remember covering, um, you know, blue sky in New Jersey that was playing, you know, on a, it was playing on a, if not a high school field, not far off of, from a high school field, mm. like maybe, a, you know, a small college field. And, you know, the locker rooms were nothing to write home about. And, and I just, it was very Spartan. And, you know, you're thinking, well, with these investments in these teams, you know, they are going to be trying to take the professionalism up a notch. And that means a lot to the athletes who are going to be playing. And it means, you know, and it does, it's kind of like a wave. You have to show and tell with how you value women who play sports. And you're just hoping that, that, you know, Julie and Mia and, and the people who are investing in the Serena and everybody else Mm -hmm. are going to be able to create a situation where it just takes everything up and not, and not wait for the gatekeepers to let them in. Yeah, I completely agree. Speak. And I was, I was thinking about this, uh, after we talked to Julie and, and I was just thinking like those, like you can say to someone, Julie, Mia, Brianna, Brandy, you know, and like, they know who you're talking about. Mm -hmm. We have never had that with men. We've never had that with men's soccer in this country. And especially now you can say maybe Landon, Abby, Carly, uh, you know, Megan, like, you know, I mean, and, and people say it's always been the women leading the charge in this country when it comes to soccer. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, you could almost say like the interest in soccer abroad, it has been curated by the success of the women's national team. Yeah. And there's more young women in this country playing soccer than playing any other sport. And, um, you know, as a girl who grew up in soccer, playing with the boys um, until high school, and then to see what happened with the women's program in this country is is so incredible. And that's sort of what I look at when I have moments where I feel really depressed about women's sports. (laughs) Yeah, you can look at that and then you can feel really good about the Bears from draft night. Exactly. Everything after draft night will be a disaster, but, you know, (laughs) draft night was great. (laughs) Uh, So before we go, I wanted to talk a little bit about Max Kellerman. Um, So, you know, there's this fight between Logan Paul. If you don't know who Logan Paul is, congratulations. You don't want to know who Logan Paul is. He's one of those guys who is a complete douchebag who got famous off of YouTube and doing stupid shit like going to suicide forests and filming dead bodies and throwing pokeballs at people in Japan while dressed as Pikachu. And he's just a douche. I mean, he's just that kid on your block that you're just like, oh, that kid is going to grow up and just be a monster. You know, he's just he's he's like he's racist. He's sexist. He's just not a good person. Um, So he's fighting Floyd Mayweather, who's an even worse person. Um, and there's been a lot of debate about, you know, is, you know, these celebrity boxing matches, like where basically you have one guy who's pretending to be a boxer facing real boxers like Floyd Mayweather. Um, so his little brother, Jake, is an even bigger douche. And he is accused of two sexual assaults and exploiting a number of women by having them live in his TikTok house or his whatever house, his content house in LA, uh, well, they were underage and he was dating some of them and he had all kinds of power. There's a huge article about it in the New York times by Taylor Lorenz that you should all read. Um, so why is Max Kellerman even talking to this guy in the first place? Good question. But Max Kellerman put this video up on his Instagram. Like he's real proud of it. And he's like, here's my interview with Jake Paul. And he's asking him all these questions about boxing and, you know, and then he, and then he says, you know, some of your, uh, your image, the bad boy, your persona, 
has has been the result of controversies that you're in and including a serious allegation from a woman, which you've denied. How do you, are you sort of leaning into this as for marketing and branding purposes as, you know, helping you look like the bad boy? So he, first of all, he doesn't even say that it's sexual assault. He just has an allegation. He denies it for him. And then he immediately rolls the question into a branding and marketing question. And I was completely appalled. I don't know why I expect any better from Max Kellerman. But, you know, in this day and age, that, and then people were like on Twitter, what did you want him to say? I'm like, here's what I wanted him to say. You've been accused of sexual assault by two different women. How do you respond? Right. That's what I wanted him to say. Openly to neutral. Right. Um, and said that wasn't what it was. And, um, you know, I was I was really disappointed by it. I was really kind of shocked by how proud he seemed of the interview, which in and of itself was terrible, even aside from that. Um, but yeah, I mean, how is this still happening in 2021? You know, and I I, I know, again, I don't want to sound like a, a Kellerman defender, but I've, I've actually enjoyed listening over the years to Max Kellerman. And, and I and I'm speaking specifically of, of the time period that he was in New York and doing a radio show. For ESPN Radio, I thought he was that he was good, and he would address these issues. I think a little bit more, uh, you know, with a little less baggage, or certainly with less apology. You know, you, you don't need to apologize for the person that you're interviewing, which is essentially what happened there. And um, and I, I so I'm surprised, but you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, when when you know people who come from kind of a reporting and a broadcasting background end up getting a first take to kind of everything has to be everything has to be a hot take kind of job, uh, it, it erodes, it erodes your credibility and your professionalism. And I think that may be part of what's happened here. So I was sorry to see it because I've, you know, over the years enjoyed Kellerman and I thought he had some, I thought he had some understanding of these types of issues, but it sounds like from this, that he completely abdicated his responsibility as someone in the media when talking about these issues responsibly. Well, and the thing that killed me about it was I'm like, you know, Jake Paul is not like a hot get interview. You know, I mean, he is. Right. He's you have a, to go out and seek out the. Yeah. Right. I mean, he is literally a person who just creates content on YouTube for people to consume. And he's one of those guys. And I've worked with these guys where everything is content. Right. Like you have an interaction with them in the hall. That's going in the show. Like, you, have, you know, I mean, it's, it's yeah. one of those kind of things. So, I mean. Jake Paul may have come in and said, you can't ask me about the sexual assault. And then that's when you should have said, OK, well, then there's no interview. Right. I mean, it's not like ESPN needs Jake Paul more than Jake Paul needs ESPN. Right. Um, so I, I was just I was aggravated by it. And by once again, having to be that woman who comes forward and is the one who points out like, hey, this is really crappy. Did anyone else see this? But thank goodness for you, Julie. Thank goodness for you. That's because how otherwise the stuff would just slide along and people would be like, cool, okay, what, what's the problem? Well, they do that anyway um, while screaming at me um, on Twitter. So just know that that's still happening. But, you're, but the but, people who don't scream at you, you're, you're, you're forcing them to think about stuff maybe a little bit differently. And it, you know, it takes time also to marinate for a lot of people. And it, for younger people who maybe don't, maybe they come across your tweet and they don't understand why that is something that shouldn't be, that's not the way to talk about these issues, then maybe you give them pause and change the trajectory of the way they look at this sort of stuff going forward, which is actually the goal. I, you know, I was reading this article in the New York Times about the guy that, uh, that uh, the biographer of Philip Roth, who got accused of sexual assault by multiple women. And one of the women in the story said, like, she, she talked about why she didn't 
keep writing about it. And she said, I just get so tired of being that woman. And I was like, oh my God, do I feel that? Because I, I feel like I'm always the person who's like, hey, wait a minute. Did you all just see that? And, you know, I remember this this conversation that you and I had when, when we were both still, you know, working for other outlets. Say this is not helping our career, always being the person to point this stuff out. And, you yeah. know, 18 months later, we were both out of work. Well, yes, 100%. And, uh, but again, you know, that's because I, you and I don't necessarily want to compromise on you know, becoming a voice that is tacitly approving of a status quo that includes the ability for these kinds of interviews to take place without anybody commenting on it. So I, I, I don't feel bad about that. I kind of feel like had I had I kind of smoothed off the parts of me that actually thought that this, you know, that wanted to cover this topic or felt like that this co- topic should be covered differently, you know, then that I wouldn't have been being true to my own kind of uh, ethics and my own kind of code of how I want to do business. But you know, whenever I think that things like this are really difficult to talk about, I had a conversation this weekend with somebody who's working for the UN um, in, in the part of the UN that's dealing with Syria. Mm. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> I try to give, you know, a little bit of perspective on stuff. It, it, these are difficult things to handle, but there are a lot of difficult things to handle. And I'm really glad that there are people in the UN working on Syria. Yeah. And, you know, and I, so I'm, and I'm really glad that you're there talking about these issues. And I think it's important to be able to, you know, have people are committed to doing things that are not easy and having conversations that are not easy and, um, you know, enduring whatever criticism that takes, uh, you know, and being able to kind of move an issue forward. So, you know, I think that is, that's where I land on this, even though, you know, there are personal difficulties when it comes to covering these topics. We can do hard things. Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of what's gotten me through the last 18 months. We can do hard things. We can do hard things. That's right. Exactly. Like the coronavirus. Unfortunately, oh my the God. New York Times is reporting that reaching herd immunity is unlikely in the U.S. Experts now believe. How's that, Julie? How you like that's, that? That's not great. No. Um, I mean, I, I don't even know what to say at this point. Like, I'm beyond rage. I'm beyond, like, hating all these people. I'm just sort of... Be fu- you know, I was watching this documentary the other night on uh, the polio vaccine and how it came to be. And just seeing how thrilled people were to have that vaccine, people volunteered their children for studies, people were, were fighting, like not fighting, but, you know, jostling to be, get their kids first in line to get the polio vaccine. And, um, you know, I just feel like we have gotten to a place in this country where we are so comfortable and we are so used to not having anything bad happen to us that, um, you know, no, no world wars, no pandemics, no great depressions where, you know, like anything like we saw in, in 1929 um, or other countries have seen. And, you know, it's just this place that when something bad happens, I just feel like there's a segment of American society that just closes their eyes and thinks it'll go away if they deny it. Um, yeah. Well, it, it also just everybody should know there's a book, Michael Lewis, new book called The Premonition about how there were a couple of people who were screaming about the coronavirus coming and what should be done to protect us were completely ignored over the last 18 months. So that is a book coming out tomorrow, which I'm looking forward to. Um, yeah, I saw him on 60 Minutes. Was it 60 Minutes yes. or was it CBS Sunday Morning? Saw that too. 60 Gosh. Minutes, yeah. He's so good. And I'm telling my kid who's obsessed with Moneyball, like the movie, I'm like, this is the guy that wrote Moneyball. And he's just like, yeah, 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 whatever. And I was like, no, it's, <laughs> it's exciting. You just tried it. It's married to Tabitha Soren. That means nothing to you, but it means things to us. Yeah. Boy, he gets people to talk to him, though. Speaking of. He really does. Reporting. Got Billy Bean to talk to him. How do you do that? Billy Bean has talked to anybody. (laughs) 
exactly. anyway um okay so really quickly i uh have continued my streak of binging handmaid's tale um when immediately when it comes out and have continued my streak of having horrible nightmares oh after i binge i'm sorry so how's the new is how's the new season um you know i mean we're completely off the reservation when it comes to the source material which we have been (laughs) for like two seasons yeah i don't know like because i'm watching it and i'm like i i I love elizabeth olsen not elizabeth olsen um god what's her name all i can think of is elizabeth olsen i'm blanking on it too i'm blanking on her name i'm sorry elizabeth moss moss yeah i'm so sorry elizabeth moss Um, and elizabeth olsen can i tell you about how i got into a fight with margaret atwood on twitter no. Oh my God. It was the worst. She was defending some uh, professor friend of hers who'd been accused of sexual assault by like a bunch of women. Ugh. And she was like railing about how like the process wasn't transparent and because they kept the women's names anonymous and stuff. And I'm just like, you wrote the seminal feminist work of the 20th century. And here hmm. you are defending a school keeping women's names anonymous because they accused your friend. And I tweeted, you know, something about Margaret Atwood and she apparently name searches and she came flying right back at me. And then at some point, my husband comes running up the stairs like, are you fighting with Margaret Atwood on Twitter? <laughs> I was like, yes. Well, she's, I mean, uh, look, I don't, you know, she and I haven't had a lot of conversations unlike you two, but, um, right. but she, I, didn't she back off of saying that the Handmaid's Tale could be applied to the United States? I don't know. She's just not as feminist as you want her to be <laughs> you know she's just not <laughs> she's in her anyway so yeah. anyway so I'm watching this and I'm like you know I I've always loved the book I read the book in high school and just went bonkers for it and I was so yeah, excited too. when the series came out and at some point I'm just sort of like am I just watching like female brutalization porn you right. know yeah I don't know yeah I've gotten to a point when it comes to like a series that I'm watching or a movie that I'm watching if I know that the next three minutes are going to be the terrorization of female characters. I do a little fast forwarding. I don't need to watch it anymore. I know yeah. what's happening, you know? Right. right. And, and yeah, there's one scene where she's, you know, uh, in peril and nothing really happens. It's, it's more like you're feeling her terror of what could happen, knowing what these people are capable of. Um, but I was really, you know, shaky and nauseous and, um, I don't know, like maybe it's getting to be a little bit too much. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'll probably watch the rest of it. We don't need, you know, a rape scene as a character motivation. Right. Completely. I'm done with that. Yeah, me too. So on that cheery note, and uh, COVID is never going away. Uh, this has been this, another episode. This has actually been the most depressing, the most depressing pod- ladies room episode. We're going to name it that. The Julie Foudy episode is the most depressing of all of our episodes. Which is really sad for Julie because she's delightful. She is. She really is. Apologies to Julie Foudy, but I appreciate know. that she came on our podcast. It's not her fault the herd immunity news came out today. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we hope that you guys will follow our work over on Deadspin, and we hope that you'll give us a follow on Twitter at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. And hey, if you like the show, please leave a rating and say so, because, you know, that's still an issue. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see you next week here in the ladies' room.